there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one equality spurring page of Talmud every day. Because in today's page, Yevamot 85, we find a little bit of surprising sentiment, at least for people used to thinking of the Talmud and other classical texts of antiquity as, you know, not exactly advocating equality between genders. Have a listen. The Gemara asks, but there is the prohibition for priests to contract ritual impurity from a corpse, which is a prohibition that is not equally applicable to all, as only priests are bound by this prohibition. And the reason that this command applies only to male priests is that the merciful one writes, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, none shall defile himself. Leviticus 21.1, from which it is inferred, the sons of Aaron and not the daughters of Aaron. Therefore, were it not for this specific derivation, I would say that women from priestly families are also obligated to avoid becoming ritually impure. What is the reason for this? Is it not due to the principle that Rav Yehuda said that Rav said that women are equated to men with regard to all punishments in the Torah, including those that are not equally applicable to all? What a question. What a way to launch into the discussion. And so with the weight of such issues on our shoulders, it gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show a much-loved scholar, thinker, writer, and teacher, Yeshiva University's Dr. Shana Trapido. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to attempt to take on this very weighty question, as you mentioned. I mean, you you only have the task of telling us what the Talmud thinks of gender equality. <laughs> so you you read this passage, uh, and and your own work is you know so deeply literary and kind of uh, you know you're a Shakespeare scholar. You you do a lot of unfolding of Western civilization and its indebtedness to Jewish roots. Enlighten us on on this question. Uh, where's the Talmud, and where are we? Absolutely. So I will tell you that the for me, the point of entry into this passage um, and this question of equality comes to a very specific moment in time where, you know, we think about the laws of Yuvamo as these kind of antiquated practices. We don't really put them into practice today, but there was a time when this exchange that Gemara is talking about here, about accountability and obligation to Torah, and it's not just based on gender, but here the invocation of the kahuna, of the priesthood, is really, really important because the kahuna is representative of those people who are in positions of religious leadership of the entire nation. So when studying Yvamo and the intricacies of Leverite marriage, it feels very remote, but it was, at one point, the most pressing political issue of its day and it is what historians now refer to as the king's great matter, heavy, great matter. And the king, of course, that we're referring to is Henry VIII of England, and the year is 1533. And Henry finally, after years of trying, divorces his wife, Catherine of Aragon. Now, she's a daughter, no less, of that power couple, Isabel and Ferdinand of Spain. So at the center of the dissolution of that marriage is the topic of our tractate here, because Henry was not Catherine's first husband. In 1502, she married Henry's elder brother, Arthur, who was the true heir, and Henry was the spare, so to speak. So the marriage of Arthur, Prince of Wales, and Catherine, the Anna princess from Spain, was tragically cut short when Arthur died five months into their union. And a special dispensation was used at that time so that Henry, who was around 10, 11 years old, could become betrothed to his brother's widow. Hold on. So you're telling me that 
King Henry actually performed some version of, of Lover and Marriage here? It's very complicated. There are actually two versions, potentially, of the contract that was written up. One on the basis of whether or not Arthur and Catherine had actually consummated their marriage and issued no heirs. And then one on the basis that they had actually consummated. So the issue of virginity is also really important. But it's also important to know that the marriage didn't go into place immediately. He was betrothed to her. He actually married her right around his 18th birthday, where on that special occasion, he was both king of England and Hassan, new husband, to his brother's widow. And now we have to fast forward to about 24 years later of marriage. Henry's in his mid-30s. Catherine is his elder. She's in her 40s. And there's still no heir to the throne of England. So if the concept of Yvamot, of Yubum, is, is that you're supposed to marry your brother's wife for the sake of continuing that line and having children, and there are no children produced, it's left everyone kind of thinking, well, did you do it right? Like, what what went wrong here? And at least that's what Henry starts to think. So just something to put in the minds of your listeners, sadly, infant loss is a very prominent experience for Catherine and Henry over the 24 years of their marriage. Very sadly, Catherine has multiple pregnancies, multiple stillbirths, and she has one daughter, Mary, that does survive infancy. She's born hale and hearty, but she's not the male heir that Henry was really hoping for. And so this is kind of where the doff comes into play about the sons of Aaron versus the daughters of Aaron and who's responsible um, or accountable between men and women with regard to kind of biblical prohibitions. So Henry's argument here, since he was able to father a son with his mistress, can't be his issue, no pun intended, it must be a problem with Catherine and her failure on some point to have kind of executed this commandment effectively. And so the question is, what can I do about this? He kind of turns the the concept to the injunction in Leviticus that if you do take your brother's wife for yourself, the punishment is childlessness. He sees this being enacted in his own life, very kind of literally, and then he has to figure out how to move forward. So for Henry, though, I think what's interesting is he's playing it fast and loose with childlessness here. He does have a daughter with Catherine. Her name is Mary. So childlessness means without sons, which is a common cultural attitude at the time. And we see that reflected in Shakespeare, especially in a moment in Macbeth, when Macbeth is so impressed by his wife's cunning and ambition, he praises her by saying, bring forth men and children only, for thy undaunted metal should compass nothing but males. So Henry seeks to now dissolve his marriage or find a way to be have it deemed illegitimate, cast the culpability off to Catherine, and then remarry someone new, and then people the aisle full of little Henrys another way, specifically with Anne Boleyn. And Shakespeare writes a play in collaboration with John Fletcher called Henry VIII in 1613. So safe to say that Elizabeth, who is the issue that comes next, is kind of dead and gone at this point. But there's a moment in the play where one of the Chamberlains says, it seems the marriage with his brother's wife hath crept too near his conscience. And another noble response, no, his conscience hath crept too near another lady. So it is very kind of convoluted. There's also a really fascinating footnote to history in which Henry actually sends a delegation to the Jewish community of Italy to meet with the rabbinic authorities to get their support 
court for his divorce, but no dice. And that's a much longer discussion. At the end of the day, though, coming back to this moment, the question of who can marry who is not just one about gender, but also about status and high profile marriages and marriages where there is kind of a role that plays something more than just beyond the individuals, but within leadership in the community. So the last thing I'll say, I guess, is that in that Shakespeare adaptation or kind of historical drama, historical fiction-ish of Henry's marriage. At the end of the play, Elizabeth is born to Anne Boleyn, and there's this whole dramatic scene where Cranmer comes out, and this is the princess we've always wanted, and she will reign and change England like no one ever has before. But the historical uh, documents say that when Henry's wife, Boleyn, birthed a girl, his response was, by God's grace, boys will follow. So Shakespeare gives us... (laughs) It's a very kind of retelling moment of history of men, women, who is equally valued in the eyes of the law and the lives of the people. So I don't think I'm alone in being grateful for how the situation plays out. Henry breaks from Rome, establishes the Church of England, eventually paves the way for religious reform and religious freedom that shows up in the New World and in the founding of America. So I think that, you know, we find that the Gemara and the that are happening here have found their ways uh, into the intricacies of not just individual lives, but political diplomacy, religious freedoms, and there's just so much to keep unpacking and discussing here. Oh, well, let's end well. Dr. Shana Trapito, it takes a special kind of talent to take a very complicated issue and make it infinitely more complicated <laughs> and rich. So I know, I know I do, and I know everyone listening uh, also does, want a lot more of this, a lot more Shakespeare, Western Civ, Jewish thought. Where do we go to find more? More of you, more of this stuff. Thank you so much for asking. So I would say my work that I do with the Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought and my colleagues at Yeshiva University, we have a website. You can find us lots of video content and articles on our website. I also have a podcast with um, about a season's worth of Shakespeare in the Bible. So it's called Twice Blessed. You're welcome to check it out. And I hope that you do. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Our pleasure. Thank you. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope you do, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafyomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay and Quinn Waller. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Mark Oppenheimer, Sarah Fredman-Ader, Robert Scaramuccia, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You can find us on Twitter at takeone.fiomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic and we will see you again soon.